Hello and welcome to Deep in the D-Pad, where we explore all things gaming through an intellectual lens. I'm your friendly neighborhood host and level designer, Carlos, and with me as always is R.K. Taylor. Hello, everyone. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the Circle of Hype, where games start out as little baby lions and get held up on the front of Pride Rock for the rest of uh, us gamers to see and speculate on how they'll become a cool leader, and then uh, who knows where it'll go from there. Do you want me to do another take of that? <laughs> I love, I, I, nah, I love when you do this improv stuff. Like, it is, it's so funny and it's like so your actual personality and like you just like turn it on and like you're not nervous or anything. I love it. <laughs> Great. Okay. <laughs> so, before we get too deep into that metaphor, let's first get into our D pad delights. At the top of every episode of Deep in the D-Pad, we like to start with a section called D-Pad Delights, where we share a memory around video games. And if you would like to share a memory about video games with us and have it read on the show, tweet at us, at Deep D-Pad. You could also send your D-Pad Delight to our email, askdeepinthedpad at gmail.com, or submit it on our Reddit, r slash deepinthedpad. And if we see it, we'll read it. But first, let's hear Ryan's delight. I don't know the last time we talked about the Back to the Future card game. Uh, I'm sure you remember this. This we had some great like lunch table sit downs with some friends. You were the I believe the cards were yours. So actually, some context to this: the Back to the Future card game. I got it because I went to like the 25th anniversary movie theater screening of Back to the Future, and I answered one or two questions of trivia correctly and ended up getting that as a prize i've never seen these before or since right like this seems like oh that was a real <laughs> prize i remember the, the there was a story about it was like how many gigawatts <laughs> power does it take to power uh doc brown's car and you were like we're like 1.21 <laughs> you know like freaking out um but yeah, no, that is one of Carl's favorite movies. Um, and yeah, Back to the Future, I grew up on, and I even knew how much the gas price was in the first movie when Marty went back in time. That was the other question that like locked in my uh, reward. Wow, that's. Do you still remember that figure? I don't still remember that because it's actually been a few years since I watched the movie. Well, uh, but damn, you... was I on my game? <laughs> <For> the twenty <25th laughs> was, was I on my game in high school? <laughs> But yeah, why did you uh, why did you like this game or or pick it as your D pad delight, Ryan? Really, not because I remember the game mechanics at all. Um, you know, I don't even like remember uh, vividly, like you know, uh, what different cards like. I don't I don't remember the pe- mechanics, the art style, or anything. Um, but it it was a game, you know, with an IP that I loved. Um, and that, you know, many of us did, and we were able to sit down and play it together. And even though I, you know, have never seen those cards since, uh, and don't really remember the game in, in much detail, like I do remember the time spent with friends and how enjoyable that was. Yeah, that game was so fun. And just to kind of like, I guess, give a a frame for what the game is, it's a modification of a card game called Flux which is about, like, time and altering time events in order to accomplish whatever objectives you as a character have. And that tied into Back to the Future very well, because you could be, you know, any of the extended McFly or Tannen family, and you're now trying to use the DeLorean or other time machines to, like, flip events in order to make sure you're born, but stop other people from being born, which was, like, a really like fun and like dark side of the game, which like the the movies, you know, they barely touch upon, uh, as the game barely touch up touches upon because you know it's just supposed to be fun, goofy science fiction, right? And then all of a sudden, old Biff is like having a stomach ache, and then he just vanishes from existence, and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> but yeah, how do you remember the game this well? Do have you played it in like the last five years? No, but I had to, like, learn the game, and I had to explain it to, like, several groups of friends. So, like, it just gets ingrained in you at some point. The one thing I know that we kept kind of, like, screwing up is, I think, the use of items. I still don't really get it. I I have to watch a video again to figure it out. But, like, you would have these items, you know, like, the hoverboard. This stops me from, like, 
you know, this stops this linchpin event from being turned, or I have the, the sports almanac, and if I use it now, I can stop you from doing whatever you're doing, and, you know, we kind of do it out of order or whatever, but it didn't matter. We were we were in love with the IP and that experience that, like, playing the cards was giving us, and that was cool. Speaking of things that were cool that we probably got too hyped about, when I was in college, we were watching E3, me and a gaggle of friends, just chilling in our our friend house, whatever, and I think this might have been the same year that Kingdom Hearts 3 was announced, which like was a real big deal to a few of my friends, but this story is about Peggle 2. Something we didn't really see happening, but we all freaking loved Peggle. Like, how do you not like Peggle, honestly? Peggle's that game where, like, there's a... Uh, it's almost like a pachinko machine or a pinball machine without the flippers. Like, you just... You shoot a ball and you try to hit as many pegs on the way down. And you're trying to eliminate, like, key pegs that are colored orange or whatever throughout the level. Very satisfying watching this ball, like, ping pong around all the different things, whatever, blah, blah. And during E3, random guy comes out on stage wearing his brown jacket or whatever, and he's like, he does this anime style, like, jump up with a fist in the air, and, like, he's, like, fist pumping with his other arm, and he's like, Peggle 2! <laughs> and we were like, we were like, damn, that's a meme. Like, that's gotta be a meme. He's, like, so hyped up about this, like, kind of cutesy, simple puzzle game. And so we were pretty hyped up at the idea that, like, oh, okay, Peggle 2, great. But as one of my friends was going to uh, mimic the announce for Peggle 2 because we thought it was such a funny moment, pretty much all of us failed to realize he was under a light. And he's as tall as me, which is like about 6'1 to 6'3 range. So when he jumps up doing an anime fist bump, he just full uppercuts the light fixture that's above him. And like glass, <laughs> glass shatters everywhere. I'm, I'm looking at that like, holy shit. And we're like scrambling to get a light and make sure he's not bleeding and i'm just like <laughs> like in current day i'm looking back at that thinking like wow we're a bunch of fucking idiots <laughs> like why why did we have to break a light over peggle 2 but it was just such a funny moment i think peggle is an odd series to have as much acclaim as it does uh i i like peggle a lot i was you know i'm i was part of the hype for for peggle uh but it just seems like an like I don't know it's like fairly simple you know um it's kind of like it's a mobile game basically right but it was a game that we all played on the like you know in a web browser and you know like in school and um enjoyed but it just felt like uh like nobody disliked Peggle like it was just like this wholesome like game that anybody could pop into and you know yeah. easily learn it taps into like some primal shit i don't know exactly what it is but like i like the whole ball just going like ping 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 like you're watching you're watching the adventure the ball takes based on like where you're shooting and part of that might be also like if my calculations are correct when this baby hits like 43 ang 43 degrees on the angle it's gonna see some serious shit and like hit fucking 18 different pegs and like <laughs> like I, I don't know like what the actual like primal appeal is of that is called but i think that like resonates with the vast majority of people um and yeah i mean it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that it's basically a mobile game like i think nowadays a peggle 3 would probably be on mobile as well as pc but i don't i guess back then like mobile gaming was getting good enough to have peggle because i was like playing infinity blade at that time uh but yeah i don't know uh i think there's just uh Something about good, wholesome puzzle games that just link with people. So today's main topic, again, is the circle of hype. But we are not talking about the hype machine. We are talking about this symbiotic push and pull between the media and the audience, the producers and the consumers. And we have touched on the hype trained before in our games journalism episode that somewhat centers around cyberpunk 2077 and the journey from like being covered to launch and what have you but this is just more so going to be about like what does the media do and what do consumers do with that media or how do they interact with that media so ryan let's talk about how Games journalists present video games, right? I think this is kind of like a couple of different ways. Reviews, 
reviews so many reviews right reviews reviews out the wazoo like anytime a game has to come out we need people to tell us how good that game is so that i can decide whether i want to throw my money at this for the experience that it's offering it could also be like trailers which are really trying to get my attention really trying to make it look cool and hype trying to get me excited like not only get my attention but get me excited for the game right you want to show off something that's really going to pull me in if the trailer's not satisfying me then maybe like an interview with a developer would where now i can almost hear from the horse's mouth like what's going on at the glue factory kind of a fucked up analogy but you know it's how it goes (laughs) but uh interviews with developers it helps us know kind of like how the game is made maybe it could be a celebrity developer you know a la kojima or maybe tim schaefer you know um and it also gives the consumers the audience the gamers a chance to maybe get to know the developer a little bit. Like, we never really, you know, what's your favorite, like, food? Like, we don't get that type of stuff. It's usually always centered around the game. But at least you can, like, see how this person presents themselves in front of a camera, and maybe that sways your thinking a little bit left or right. And then the last thing I wanted to mention, besides the interviews, the gameplay trailers, and the reviews, were opinion pieces. And this one I think is uh, pretty interesting because... I'm sure we get a fair amount of it. I'm sure to some degree, like, reviews are opinion pieces, but I think we're kind of maybe talking about, like, those bigger ideas of, like, Dark Souls should have an easy mode. Like, that's, that's a big, like, controversial opinion piece. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's less about trying to sell you the game or tell you whether the game is worth playing or not, and uh, instead giving perhaps a critique of um, of a feature or, yeah. Yeah. And so these different types of games coverage gives us kind of like different lenses to look through or influences uh, kind of different aspects of our thinking, right? So the interviews with the developers, we get to know a little bit of like, how is it made? With the trailers, we get to know to some degree at a quick glance, will my attention be worth it? Uh, The opinion pieces could mostly just be like, hey, I kind of have this thought, like, do others agree with me? Do they disagree? Is there is there room to have like some sort of constructive conversation? And then the reviews, like mentioned before, is primarily like, is my money worth this experience? There are also playthroughs. Like our let's play. That's true. There are let's plays, variety of let's plays, honestly, uh, because IGN has this uh, speedrunner series right, where yeah. like they get developers to watch speedrunners clear a level, and that's pretty entertaining to watch. Uh, a lot of developers just like being dumbfounded at how players are uh, manipulating their systems in a in a vanilla way. There's also like regular uh, let's plays, which we, you know we see all over the internet. But let's kind of frame this. Actually, you know, do regular Let's Plays fit under sort of the games journalism branch? Let's keep it in the realm of, like, the more newer releasing games. Does, like, you know, does Markiplier playing the brand new Assassin's Creed? Like, is that is that is that part of the, the circle of hype? Yeah, it's hard <laughs> to call him a journalist um, from, what I, yeah. from what I know about him. But I would say it's part of mass media. So, okay. I would say it's still relevant to our conversation. So the Let's Plays, then, if if it's journalists doing the Let's Plays, that kind of fits within our, our framing better. But uh, basically, a Let's Play just is almost deeper than a review, right? Because, like, a review is just giving you this, like, here's everything at, like, the quickest glance. And then a Let's Play is actually showing you moment to moment, like, oh, this is this is how the game is actually fully functioning. And here's the flow of yeah, it. Yeah, it's like uh, an extended uh, uh, gameplay trailer. Right. Like, if we were to take, say, any of the trailers from Grand Theft Auto the Definitive Edition and then juxtapose that with a five-minute-long Let's Play of just the first five minutes of GTA San Andreas, you're going to see very different pictures. Yeah, one thing I think that we could also throw in is, like, video essays or, like, maybe, like, more scholarly approaches. I I think that these are um, different enough from opinion pieces Right, so like I'm thinking of something like a, a feminist reading of What Remains of Edith Finch, right? Like something mm-hmm. like that. That's it, that's kind of um, discussing the game's influence 
uh, in our context or meaning or the themes or something like that, right? So that's less about the coverage of the game itself, but it still is, you know, it's not intended to get you to play it necessarily. It's intended to get one who has played it, understand it more deeply. Yeah, yeah. And I personally love content like that. Like most recently, I watched a video about time loop games because, you know, we had a, a bonus bite or something about time loops. And something that I kind of wanted to get at deeper, this video basically made it all, it made it the central point, which was like death loops. How does it affect the actual character, right? Like, Almost like, you know, how is Bill Murray actually affected by being in Groundhog Day? Like, does he go crazy? Does he become an, an insane killer and then come back to the real world? And, you know, anyway, that I, I really enjoy content like that and and it exploring like different facets of these games, almost like how we tangentially like mention games as we're exploring like different stuff. That to me does make me want to play the game more to to some extent, like. Like, I might not have been as hyped on Deathloop until hearing, like, oh, the guy kind of goes crazy from being in the Deathloop for too long, which I don't know if it's the case. I've only played, like, an hour of Deathloop. Don't don't kill me for spoilers here. Uh, but, like, just getting a really new point of view or a cool insight on a title that either you've experienced or, or not might get you to come back to that. So how do journalists get consumers hyped, Ryan? Whoa, it's all on me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, before we get into this, I want to say that there are going to be a lot of links in the description below. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different, you know, specific events and whatnot um, in this episode. So just, you know, you can reference any of that stuff below. Okay, so we're going to talk about three main ways uh, that mass media kind of influences the populace, right? Or the consumers of the media, right? They are agenda setting, priming, and framing. Okay, uh, we'll talk about what these mean a bit, right? So, so three pillars, agenda setting, priming, framing. First, we'll start with the agenda setting. What does that mean? Agenda setting refers to the information that the news outlets are, are choosing uh, to discuss in their news outlet, right? Um, there are an infinite number of stories that could be covered every day. If we accept that, right, that there are so many different things that we could talk about, um, you know, a newspaper is only so big or, you know, like that would kind of be in, there are only so many stories that they can cover, right? There are only so many journalists and what they choose to, to write about, what they choose to uh, put out there for the consumers influences what consumers think is important, what consumers value, right? So there's this kind of direct relationship between, you know, if, if you're, if you're in a society, for example, that is talking about climate change all the time, the denizens of that society are going to weight climate change as something that is more important than, um, a place that let's say never covers it at all. Let's bring it to video games, right? Let's say, yeah. let's say, how does this, how does this tie to video games? What, what talking points do we normally see in the gaming sphere that help form the opinions or rather lead the, the gamers TM or the audience to like form opinions about what's important. Okay. There are like a ton of ways, right? So like console watch um, is one, right? Where we are covering the next gen consoles uh, every week, if, you know, whether or not there's a ton of new information to cover or eat. Uh, okay. So like PS five chipsets are going to be super good or like the PS five chipsets are, are in heavy demand, so PS5s will going to be even harder to get this year. Console watch, like that type of thing. Exactly, and like game of the year. Like not every year there need there doesn't need to be a game that is you know groundbreaking every single year. But we're kind of taught that every year a game ought to be celebrated for you know being an outstanding achievement in gaming. So we yeah. we could award three. We could. We could in one year we could give out three awards for outstanding game, and then the following year, if nothing meets that bar, then we perhaps we wouldn't give it out at all that year. But instead, we have this like kind of narrow focus, and and you know every year you know that there's going there are going to be sites that publish a game of the year, um, so it kind of right. gets you into that mindset of already thinking about it. You know, you know that the game of the year awards are going to be announced or whatever, right? Right. The game of the year, and it's kind of funny that you mentioned like like. Uh... You know, not every year there is a revolutionary groundbreaking game, but like 
because the machine, quote unquote, is there, ever present, always turning, we need to have a game of the year ceremony like jeff Keeley needs to walk out onto the stage and like show us a couple of ads and then let developers talk for a few seconds to say oh thank you for playing my game i appreciate it greatly and you know maybe one time or two times the guy from a way out will be like fuck hollywood gaming's better (laughs) like like, but but it, it but it's odd that we have this like it's almost mandatory every year as a developer i like it like i like the feeling of being appreciated of course but when it seems mandatory it almost deflates the earning of it i guess yeah i mean that makes sense to me it's like someone had to get it you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah like 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 half the games this year came out unfinished and broken but you know what unpacking was pretty good game of the year baby honestly I don't want, I'm not shitting on un- unpacking. Like, we'll talk about unpacking in another episode, but like, that game should probably be getting game of the year from a couple of places. Last thing I wanted to mention on game of the year before we move to a different point is that like, so many different publications have a game of the year. There is no universal game of the year. Sometimes there kind of is. I guess you can say which game has the most Game of the Year or GOATI, like however you want to abbreviate it. Like, how many GOATI accolades does does this one game have? And, like, I think the funniest example is Batman Arkham City because uh, there was that whole... There was like a whole news cycle about how after winning so many Game of the Year awards, they changed the cover art and it was just completely plastered in like 27 different Game of the Year awards that were completely covering the rest of the artwork. And... That is a example of, like, here's this game that was actually just so fucking good and different that, like, it earned, like, all those accolades from different places. But I think in the more democratized landscape that we have now, we have so many different publications giving so many different games the accolade. And I think to some extent it does really correspond to, like, how much, like, marketing slash coverage the game gets because publications aren't going to notice a game if it's not being advertised, right? Or if it's not being sent to them directly. So agenda setting is about the talking points and kind of starting to lead the public consciousness in one way or another. What's the next phase of that? Or is there anything more to agenda setting? Yeah, so priming is a related concept. So that's the second one. Uh, Framing being the third, we'll get to that. Uh, But priming... uh, Priming actually comes from a concept in cognitive psychology. Um, so just to run a quick example, um, you know, two words, let's say I gave you the word dog, right? The word, mm-hmm. if I ask you to give me another word, right, you are, you're likely to give me a word like cat or pet or animal, right? right? Because those words are semantically linked, which essentially means that the meaning of those words is similar. I've primed you with the first word, in this case, the word dog. The semantically related words like cat, pet, or animal, those are easier to recall than non-semantically related words like screwdriver or dystopia. Another thing that that we kind of implicitly process is like uh, the location, right? So like, is the word like in the center of the page? Is it on the, is it on the front page? Is it, you know, is it bolded? Um, those kinds of things are kind of serve to prime how we process the information. If it's in red letters, perhaps that'll, you know, affect the, our interpretation of it, right? We might think of it as more dangerous perhaps, or does that make sense? Does that make sense for priming? I mean, we can relate this to news. I just want to see if that is working. I do think that makes sense. If I, if I could echo it back at you in a way I can phrase it um it sounds like basically seven degrees of separation from kevin bacon but like for words right so like if you gave me dog then one degree of separation is going to be animal you know cat i'd immediately think of maybe maybe like mud or wet because like dogs are messy um and that makes me think a little bit about psychonauts too specifically uh there was like this casino level where you learn the ability to make mental connections, which is literally tying in words within a character's mind. You're connecting them to different words. And just to sort of like wrap up this story very quickly, you break and make a mental connection within someone's mind by like jumping into the word like risk and then connecting risk to like 
swimming, right? And now they have a fear of swimming. Or you're, you jump into the word money and then make a mental connection, which is just zip lining between multiple platforms, but you're mentally connecting money to like greed, to then safety, to then the school or something like that to kind of put an idea into someone's head. But I think that's like a, a good gamified visual example of what you're talking about where it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to jump into the dog thought and then it's going to zip line directly to the animal thought. And once I'm in the animal thought, I now have like eight different connections because animal could be practically anything within this umbrella. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I really like that example. Uh, and we can see this. How do we see this in media? Right. Is like, is the question, right? So um, right. we could think of something like the coverage of, of COVID and the, vaccine distribution uh and perhaps republicans may be more reactive to to headlines that uh question their freedom right with something like vaccine mandates and that may get get a lot of coverage right uh right and but they're using those particular buzzwords like freedom and freedom mandate. yeah yeah right. exactly so the so the freedom and the mandate are like directly opposition to each other in this headline, I suppose, right? Yes, and freedom. Um, I, I think freedom would be considered a big buzzword for Republicans, um, in general, yeah. or like coverage from conservative outlets, right? We could say. So it may be, you know, immigration may be considered a, a threat to freedom, and vaccine mandates may be considered a threat a threat to freedom. But they're really different, you know, kind of fundamentally different values. Like the threat that is perceived really isn't about freedom for, uh. Or it's not the same kind of freedom. I, you know, it, it's kind of hard. Right. To get it's into like the individual space, but... freedom versus the freedom of the whole versus like idealistic freedom. There's like so many different freedoms that we have that just saying freedom like doesn't fucking equate to anything other than a dog whistle because that word is so loaded with different lenses. Everyone is going to kind of see it differently. Totally. Yes. Um, and just to, you know, play fair, the, you know, for, for liberals, the, the coverage of the COVID vaccine, like, wouldn't be so much about freedom, perhaps, but about, uh, you know, the death toll or, um, you know, like human suffering may be something, you know, we could talk about specific primes, but I don't think we necessarily need to go too deep into it. Right. So, like, on the, on the death count side, like you were saying, it's appealing more to the emotional side of things. I guess in both cases, it's appealing to the emotional side of things. But with the freedom slash vaccine mandate, it seems to be more of this, like, sort of, I guess, inward emotion. Like, this is going to affect myself, whereas, like, a maybe a death count headline sure it'll affect you in the way that like you're maybe more hyper aware of like those numbers but that type of headline gets you thinking and feeling like exterior wise so like death death count or you know human suffering right we're thinking like oh no like them like them that's so bad for them whereas like the example we just gave with freedom and vaccine mandates is like oh no me me like gotta make sure me is okay for sure and we are bleeding into framing a little bit but they're very related concepts and you know again one article is going to be you can you know use the same article to you know explore all three of these concepts um but let's re let's relate it to games like what how how do you see priming used in games i think the thing i always jump to in video games when it comes to an idea like this is something like if you liked x game you'll love this game or this is the dark souls of blank and i think in those examples the game is almost a buzzword like this is the Dark Souls of Star Wars, right? Now talking about Jedi Fallen Order. Like, you can almost perfectly picture how that combat would look and play out. Uh, because you have a reference point of Dark Souls. Dark Souls is almost this buzzword for, like, here's a difficult game that's based around stamina. And usually one-on-one -on -one encounters are going to be very tense. It's like... Genshin Impact exclamation point the new Breath of the Wild question mark you know it's so right. that's so loaded right and it's like trying to Breath of the Wild is considered to be like a groundbreaking game um, so anything that's you know using the kinds of mechanics they're hoping is, are, is going to directly transfer onto this other IP it's getting you excited because you you know you are a fan of Breath of the Wild so they're instead of talking about the game on its own merits it's you know even the, like a headline could 
uh, be signaling to you that you should read this article. Right. And just to tie it into video game coverage one more time, uh, I think a good buzzword that I've been kind of seeing more and more in the last uh, couple of years has been the boomer shooter. Like the, 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 like, however mild, however, like, if this has any ageist connotation, I'm not entirely sure, but it is speaking to, like, the original Doom. Like, oh, these, this is the type of shooter that, like, the super old people play, you know, for, in the eyes of gamers, TM. So, like, boomer shooters are now games that play, like, the OG Doom, where you're kind of just, you know, moving around super quickly and you're shooting and, you know, there's, there's maybe keys you collect or whatever, but, it's priming you to know like what to expect. Like it could be like, Oh, this is the boomer shooter, but with a grapple hook or like, this is a boomer shooter, but with like a style system from devil may cry. Yeah. So kind of, you're kind of indicating that like genres may be like buzzwords uh, for in journalism. I, I think as a genre is hot, it certainly turns into a buzzword like roguelike, right? Like I think we talked about that at length. Uh, roguelike certainly turned into a big buzzword as did battle Royale. And right now, you know, kind of somewhat related, the metaverse is a huge buzzword within VR and maybe kind of tangentially related to VR. But these are all things that are just meant to get you like, huh? Or like give you an idea of like what is what is to be expected, I guess. Cool. Um, The, the third one, right, just to, to wrap this up is framing. We could think of that as from whose perspective is the media coverage written? Right. What is the point of view taken? Right. Is is the piece an interview? Is it an, an opinion piece? Is it a documentary? Right. To look at regular, you know, like the or legacy news. Right. We could say um, a story about like the framed as the Syrian refugees uh, crisis. Right. Or like we could say, let's say it's let's say that the like theme of the piece is that refugees are fleeing despotism. Right. Um, right. The. A, a, a different piece that's talking about the same place, right? The same, you know, place on a map, let's say, um, could be talking about like illegals entering the country, right? So these are completely different takes and they're from different standpoints. Um, they're not really focusing on the same same facts, but they're talking about the same event. Both point of views are focusing on the subject, which is the refugees but even within the, the the word refugee, like that could be subbed out for something else, right? Like refugees versus illegal immigrants, right? Fleeing despotism versus flooding the country, like very loaded uh, words to be applied to like both of these scenarios where like the facts are bombs are being dropped on a group of people. A group of people is trying to survive and move to survive, those are kind of the facts of the situation. There, we can blow it up to a whole bunch of different intricacies. This is not a pol- politics podcast. Like, we're not going to get into that. But we are specifically just talking about, like, how do these words make us initially feel when going into the story? And that's what the framing is all about. It's all about, you know, one side or, you know, one point of view being, like, illegal immigrants flooding country you know it creates a sense of like danger you know it creates this idea the word flood creates this idea that like things are either uh out of control overwhelming or potentially going to get like too i guess populated i'm not entirely sure whereas if we're focusing on like the subject plus their plight and you know what the solution to that plight is we get a different sort of uh idea we get a different feeling when consuming the article but like how does this relate to games how do journalists frame stuff for games is it always just like wow this game is exciting or does the framing like change based on like what the piece of media is yeah you like like you mentioned unpacking earlier right and if i was gonna Mm -hmm. like one could write a, a story about how unpacking is you know a slow game and it's you know uh like its graphics are, you know, low fidelity and, and how, you know, it's a disgrace to contemporary gaming, right? Playing it feels like a literal chore because the game is is centered around chores. 
but there's also a way different way to look at unpacking. Right. And, and, you know, we could talk about it as like visual storytelling. Um, and we could look at the narrative, like what narrative we can derive from, from the game, even though there are like no words in the game, there's no, uh, dialogue. And that would be a very different take, right? Right. And rather it being a chore, it could be framed or written as this is a, a tranquil meditative game, something like that, where it's like, speaking more positively about the already existing aspects whereas like previously i just said like oh this game is literally about unpacking you know moving and unpacking what a chore whereas like if i were to personally write about it i would i would call it just like a lovely take it at your own pace experience you know super tranquil again meditative because you just have the freedom to like put things where you want but again this is all positive like i'm just speaking positively and someone could see all this stuff and just get pissed off and be like no one's telling me where to put the the action figures uh i don't know why i can't open the boxes in whatever order i want and like so on and so forth right Right, and also like look at something like uh like if the title of the story was hardcore gamers will kill for this game, let's say, right? They're right. they're kind of funneling their audience base into people who identify as hardcore gamers, right? And there there's this kind of like uh there's a kind of signaling, you know, that this is going to be a good game if you understand games or if you take them seriously. Um but there's also a almost like boxing out of um the audience space who may be more casual. Uh, and, and if we dig deeper into that piece and not just look at the uh, audience that's being like called to arms to read this, this paper, it's going to be written, you know, in, a, in probably a more technical way, or it's going to, you know, use language or perhaps rhetorical advices or references that appeal to hardcore gamers. Right. Right. Okay. But let's look at it the other way. Right. So these are all, a, all of these ideas have been about how, you know, mass media is kind of influencing the way that people think, you know, and, and it's relatively subtle, right? That's like another thing that we should say. Most of us go through, you know, our media channels without really thinking about all of these things uh, head on. You know, we're just more kind of passive consumers oftentimes. Um, right. But consumers do have an impact on on journalism and, and journalists, right? And I think that's the other side of this coin that you know, you mentioned the symbiotic relationship. I think that's, you know, where we can go next. Right. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about the producers, I guess, of this hype cycle. Now it's time to focus more on the consumers, right? The gamers TM, the the not gamers, the just anyone trying to find out like what the hell is going on in the gaming sphere. They get to actually somewhat or maybe largely influence media. It's like very, it's kind of it's almost chicken or the egg. So like, excuse us if we have a little trouble speaking on this section, but it is very much like this sort of this tightly packed, like circle symbiotic relationship. So just to get into it, right. User engagement will sometimes like lead to media outlets becoming like outrage machines because we as humans are just more driven to click on like conflict or tragedy, something like that. And these clicks translate into like more money and whatever for like a website. And that could end up creating this like vicious cycle of like, okay, well, outrage articles are doing good. They're getting lots of clicks. Let's, let's make an article that says like Dark Souls is too hard. And that is now like framing things in a, you know, it's like doing the job of like creating this moment of like, I don't think Dark Souls is too hard or like, yeah, I agree. And then like people are like clicking on it. And I think a tangible example of this kind of like outrage moment plus like influence happening both ways is like the the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer came out, you know, some time ago with that OG Sonic that had teeth and like looked very odd and so much buzz so much consumer engagement was happening around that depiction of sonic that and and they were displeased they were so displeased and so vocal and potentially numerous about this that they had basically the whole the whole movie like sonic specifically like the whole the whole all of his scenes like redone 
uh at least on the vfx side they had they got all the artists like doing sonic's character and stuff to like remake them and re-put them into the scenes all that work yada yada and that was largely because the audience reaction to that original depiction of sonic and i think for the business side right it was probably a little worrying to their bottom line like oh so many people don't like how we made sonic look this movie might not make money then like let's let's like bend to their will and like make sonic look good because that's what people want and they'll give us money for that and on kind of the other side of things where like the audience is like very vocal about a problem but like the producer does nothing is maybe like the game of thrones like final season right which like a whole bunch of people you know didn't have a good time with myself included and there's like a big petition that has like well over a million signatures to like quote unquote like redo the last season or something like that right that's like not going to happen there's like too many moving parts too many people to pay to like get that happening again but it does show at least hbo that like people want to see this thing done right or they want some sort of proper closure from this thing and maybe that will lead to hbo doing something down the road we don't know until it actually happens right but i think that kind of helps to show us a bit of the sort of nature of like how can a user you know affect say ign or or the game or something like that yeah i think it's i like that you brought up money a little bit ago too because i i do think that one of the one of my fears here is that um these these like journalistic institutions are captured by their own audience's demands and uh you know perhaps the journalists who are writing the like dead souls art the dark souls article that you mentioned the uh like is this game too hard? You know, perhaps the person writing that finds that to be a really boring piece and would prefer to take a different angle, uh, but perhaps something more experimental. But if if that's not going to rake in the bucks, you know, then they're kind of pigeonholed into writing about very specific topics. Right. Yeah. To to circle it back to something I mentioned earlier, the the time loop video, right? The 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 video about time loop games and the the various effects it could have on an individual, like that could have been a far more appealing piece of content for an IGN editor to make than having to write for the fifth time, is this Dark Souls-like game too difficult? Do we need a easy mode for Dark Souls, which has just been at least an artic- at least one article that makes the rounds in these freaking subreddits and everything else. That's like once a year or, you know, once a Souls-like game comes out, which at this point is basically once a year. Yeah, going back to the uh, Sonic and Game of Thrones, I like that you mentioned both of those examples because Sonic is an example of um, an audience effort that was successful, and Game of Thrones so far, like it does, it, that doesn't seem like the last season is going to be rewritten, despite the fact that there are over a million people have signed. Right. So let's actually talk about a moment or two where we see consumer intervention both in a positive light and in a negative light. The positive light, I would say, is IGN's Dead Cells review and subsequent firing of one of their uh, reviewers slash editors. Uh, it turned out that this Dead Cells review on IGN was plagiarized from a YouTube channel called Boomstick Gaming. And if I recall correctly, this channel was actually relatively small, like maybe just a couple of thousand subscribers, I'm guessing at most. And what happened was this Dead Cells review was basically mildly reworded from the Boomstick Gaming video. And I think it was Boomstick Gaming put out a video saying, hey, I noticed that this review sounds awfully similar to mine. What's going on here? I'm a small channel. Not many people are going to notice this. And the people who saw that video then became vocal on like the different spaces, you know, Facebook, Twitter, what have you, Reddit. And that eventually mounted more and more either outrage or demand for this editor to be fired, for the uh, credit to go to Boomstick Gaming, and or maybe for a new review to be made. And that ultimately led to IGN firing that editor and them getting this like, you know, red letter of like plagiarism on their profile forever moving forward. 
good for that boomstick gaming guy for for finding that out you know that's like yeah that he could that could have gone unseen you know and for speaking out and actually getting attention uh, you know that's i'm i'm glad the guy was called out i mean plagiarizing is is a real sin in the journalism world yeah for sure and especially trying to pull from someone with such a smaller audience in comparison to ign which is basically the i don't know what do you what do you want to call it like the Probably largest gaming outlet, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what's the largest, like, news network? You know what I mean? Like, is this the CNN, NBC, Fox News all rolled into one of video games? Like, this IGN is usually kind of like the first thing you think of when you think of, I need to see a review for video games. It might not be the case so much nowadays since we have a lot more, like, Let's Players and sort of, like, regular, everyday people now putting their own opinions out, but, like... It was the case that IGN was, like, massively the place to go. The other example I wanted to give of the audience engaging, but in a much more negative light, is probably the more recent Marvel's Avengers uh, harassment or uh, hate train that came after the announcement of, like, skill boosters and other things that equate to pay to win, which is kind of a buzzword uh, within the games industry, the gaming sphere, right? Is like pay to win, free to play. They have like connotations that people see differently. And the main focus on this Marvel Avengers story is like they had two or three people on the stage during E3. And one person says, and we promise no pay to win transactions like no microtransactions or something like that like they they made some promise that then months and months later the developer changed on like they added in you know skill boosters they added in real money microtransactions like whatever they said they weren't going to add in they put that in several months after the game's launch and the gamers tm raged and they raged so much that uh and by rage, I mean they were, like, sending awful messages, they were sending death threats, just threats, just uh, regular, you know, copious amounts of hate language. Like, just too much for someone who probably doesn't actually ever touch the fucking editor for the Marvel's Avengers game. They were saying it, to, they were saying it like, are sending these threats to the... To the person who was on the E3 stage that said, hey, we're not going to do this, which so I believe was like the, the community manager. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was the community yeah. manager, I'm pretty sure. So literally, like, you're, you're shooting the messenger, the liaison between the actual, like, in-the-trenches developers and the in-the-couches audience. And uh, I, I don't know if uh, this person ended up having to quit or if they're still with the studio, but... Crystal Dynamics had to release a statement on their subreddit for the Avengers calling for the stop of this harassment towards this individual and explaining as vaguely as they can that, like, this individual is not the one who made the decision, like, you know, it comes from somewhere else and we're going to blah, blah to do better and what have you. And that's a moment where, you know, the consumer engagement was like overwhelming it was violent it was for the extreme that it went it was very uncalled for and it did i don't know if it like shaped media really but it's just a moment that i recall where you know the gamers got to respond and they got a response back yeah that's wicked and Again, you know, you're pointing out like kind of the good side of uh, audience contribution, right? Uh, and the bad side, right? So there right. are hate mobs for Marvel's Avengers, but then also like a plagiarist was uh, called out, you know, and he for taking intellectual credit for someone else's work, um, and that affected real change. Um, but to, like, do you overall would you say that you have like a kind of like a cynical view or an optimistic view of this model? Right? Is it is it more that um, the media it placates more than it informs because they're captured by um, their audiences and they're just going to like respond uh, and produce content that kind of gets at people's base like impulses and keeps them kind of uh, pacified, right? Um, or or the optimistic formulation would be something like uh, the media learns from the audience, right? Like the there's 
it kind of an, it's an adaptive, you know, you mentioned symbiotic again, right? Like, uh, is it a kind of symbiosis where the media is accurately responding to the rational needs of a market? And, um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's definitely two sides to the same coin. I feel like I'm almost of both minds, uh, except I would probably exchange media for content creator. Uh, basically, again, hearkening back to the everyday men, like the, the regular YouTuber, the girlfriend reviews, the donkey, the, the whoever else that is not jumping out at my head right now. But when I am mostly in the cynical mindset of the like, yeah, this is just meant to placate us, at least when it comes to the media. And when I'm thinking of media versus content creators, media is very much like it's Kotaku, it's IGN, it's Game Informer, it's all it's GameSpot, it's all these different like big businesses uh, that have to, you know, they have to keep the shit going. And they also are I don't know how beholden to certain publishers or what have you to like keep a good relationship. That's kind of like the very tricky part of things in, in I think media publisher relations is like, Hey, we're a publisher. We can give you the free game and all the goodies so that you can like review the game. But then like, are they going to be as likely to do that if you play their game and say, hey, this is like a 30 out of 100, like it fucking sucked, like blah, blah, blah. And then next year, the new game comes out and they're like, oh, those guys didn't like our last game. I don't know if we should send them another copy, which then hits them financially because now they have to buy copies to like review the game, which is something that now on the optimistic side, content creators you know, for better and worse, they're nobodies, right? Until they hit like a certain multi-million subscriber count or what have you. And even then, they aren't really that beholden to anything, right? Like if they are kind of just a sole like contributor, right? Like if it's, if it's just Dunky making a video and editing the video and then putting out the video, right? Then he only has to worry about himself, like, if he says Castlevania is a really bad game and and Konami is like, well, fuck you, Dunky. Like, I don't want you playing any more Konami games. I'm not going to send you anything. Then Dunky is just like, all right, I don't give a shit. Like, I have to spend my $60 on these games anyway. I'm just going to play the games and tell the truth. I think with the content creator side of things, the less big business side of things, I have more optimism because I get the stuff that I've talked about before, like the, the more video essay about time loops and not just being like, Oh, time loops are a fun mechanic. Like it allows us to run around the level and like kill the same people. And like, it's almost like a roguelike, but it's more, it's like, it's just like much more interesting media. It's at times media that's being asked for by the audience. Whereas like IGN kind of has to just keep doing what they're doing either because it's already part of the formula. They have so many people to pay or like what have you. Whereas like a individual content creator or a small group of content creators can say like, Hey, I don't really want to do reviews anymore. And that's going to hit my subscriber count. And I understand that but I'd rather tackle video game coverage in this way. Maybe I want to interview developers while playing their game and asking them specific questions about specific parts. Or maybe I want to talk to a publisher and get into the business side of things. And this is something that like IGN wouldn't cover, but I know that my commenters and my subscribers, they want this stuff because they can't get it from IGN. That's where I get more optimistic is with the individual content creators. And I am overtly cynical <laughs> when it comes to the big businesses trying to sway our opinions on video games. Yeah. You like indie, like small operations, people who aren't attached to like, you know, a record label basically, right? Like it feels more honest. Versus... Yeah. 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 I see that. Um, what they, what it lacks is the authority, you know, like uh, ostensibly if someone is working for IGN, they have some credentials or something that, you know, there was a rigorous interviewing process and they really chose the best candidate, et cetera. Um, you don't have that with the individual creators, right? And, and maybe you don't need it, right? It, you don't, I'm not saying that, you know, kind of like an independent person can't have like very high quality work, um, perhaps because they have more freedom they can. Um, I, I feel really mixed about it. You know, I, I, I'm, I don't take the hard optimistic route or the hard pessimistic route. 
Yeah, I think it's always going to be kind of like a mixture of the two, right? Like, where there is shadow, there is light, right? So we need both of of these to be in place, or or not both of them to be in place, but like, we're going to have some amount of optimism within the cynicism, or vice versa. Uh, thankfully, right? Because if this was entirely, if we were stuck in an entirely cynical games press whatever like that would just fucking suck (laughs) like like i don't think i don't think anybody would really be watching if we all sort of thought and knew that like these people are just giving us stuff to basically numb us until the game comes out and we don't really know what's going on and then the game is bad or what have you what do you think about the interplay between say like developers audience and maybe media when it comes to the democratization of video games, uh, such as early access or Kickstarter, where these games can show their intent, they can give a little taste of what they want to do, give a roadmap of what they're planning on making and how long that should take, right? And then being able to kind of like work on that and give updates, you know, directly from developers, like the developers themselves can write the post saying, hey, this is what we're working on. This is what we got in so far. You know, we're very excited for you guys to try it and tell us what you think because they can then, you know, adjust and update their game based on that feedback to make it exactly what their audience wants. Yeah, it's kind of like a negotiation, right? Like instead of instead of it existing at a corporate level, it's directly like I'm thinking of uh, of Stardew Valley, right? Um being able to show updates of these games and document, you know, you're continuing to get people interested and it's like kind of its own form of advertising. Um, but you're also accepting input from, uh, from the people who are submitting and, and, and paying you, you know, to, because they believe in, in your project. I don't know why I'm using the second person. I mean, it's one person. It's like one specific dude that I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't know his name. Do you remember the Stardew Valley dev's name? No, no, I don't. I actually haven't played Stardew Valley yet, but I do know it's like a smash hit. Yeah, I'm sure there are other Kickstarters that you're aware of, though, where, you know, you were able to, the the, the contributors were able to kind of influence the game. And I would say the same principle holds, you know, they're kind of, it, it, it's like having people who are like reading a draft of a, sh- of a story you're writing, right? Right. Uh, yeah. and, and being able to like tell you, you know, which directions, uh, you know that which directions they recommend or what they think is successful or not successful um and then you're able to revise it and make it a better story you know make it something that's more palatable to to more people perhaps or or you know it's serving its purpose as efficiently as possible to as many people as possible right yeah exactly and there could be times where the audience sees something that the developer just doesn't see right you know as a developer we get tunnel vision like oh so often right it's it's our it's our daily job cycle to sit at our desk hyper focus in on something and like deconstruct it reconstruct it figure out how to make it cool again and that makes it difficult for us to see things that someone from the outside would notice like let's let's just say you were making like a VR Rainbow Six Siege type game and it's an early access and at some point one of your players makes this like wild it almost looks like a bug where like they grab a C4 charge and they like throw it on a specific location and it floats down or something like that and they're like wow that was so cool I showed this off to other gamers and taught them how to do it and now it's become kind of part of the meta and the game isn't out yet but like this has to be a mechanic can you please put in parachute grenades as like a mechanic and that's something that the developer maybe never thought of. Maybe they were just thinking like, Hey, I'm trying to make siege. I'm trying to make siege. Like I must make sure that these mechanics work right and kind of emulate what I'm, what I'm going for. But then they see what the players are doing and they're like, wow, that actually looks really fun. Like, sure. I'll add in a couple of grenades with like a goofy little army man parachute that opens up. Maybe it's like something wildly different where it's like, I don't know if this is the story of Splitgate, but let's just make up a story for Splitgate. Splitgate's a first-person shooter that also has portals. Like, it could have very much been like, hey, I want to make a first-person shooter. What do you, the internet, want to combine into a first-person shooter? And the internet says, 
in in through some Twitter poll, maybe the internet says like Portal over like four other games, right? Like I want to make a first person shooter, but Dark Souls. I want to make a first person shooter, but Mario. I want to make a first person shooter, but Portal. And then the Twitter poll, eighty nine percent says Portal, and then they are like, all right, I'm gonna set forward on it, and then give you guys updates, and then Splitgate is born, and you know more and more people play it because it's exactly what they asked for, and now they can tell their friends like, yo, this developer actually listens to the gamers, TM. Let's fuck with this guy and like in a positive way and like play their game. Let's tell them like what we think will make the game better because maybe like they're more likely to react to us than the other the other devs. Yeah, the developer earned their respect by actually listening to the to the crowd. Yeah. All right, and now we're on to skill treat. To close out every episode of Deep in the D-Pad, we like to share a piece of knowledge from our fields of study to help you the audience you know come out of this with something new something fresh something cool if the rest of the episode didn't give you new things to mentally chew on hopefully the skill treat will give you something to uh chew on (laughs) 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 okay All right, so (laughs) shaky intro aside, today's skill tree is about semiotics. Semiotics, also called semiotic studies, is the study of sign processes, where any activity, conduct, or process that involves signs, you know, wet floor, danger, electricity, blah, 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 any process that involves signs where a sign is defined and communicates a meaning that is not the sign itself to like the person reading the sign. Like that's semiotics. It's just about making signs and trying to make sure that sign is as like readable and understandable as possible. And that is not simply meaning like words are on the sign, right? Like when we look at the wet floor sign in the middle of like a Ikea or whatever store, right? It says like, it says it in two languages usually, right? It'll say like wet floor and then it'll say like ciudado, like wet floor or whatever. Um, And then on top of that, you have symbols, right? You have the man that's kind of like midway slipping the, the stick figure man. And like the triangle is another symbol that we see throughout many different signs that communicate like hazard, right? Or like the no smoking symbol, right? Like a cigarette with a cir- with a round circle. I mean, even just a round circle with a slash third is kind of like a no, you know, it's like a do not do this thing here. Exactly, right. And so we use semiotics to some extent, either tangentially or directly, in game design at the point of level design and art. Like, level design and art come together to create paths for the player and then try to communicate those paths like the best way they can, right? And so one example I can pull from that I played like within the last three days was the last level in Halo 1 where you return to the the ship that was in the first level of the game, uh, the tutorial level, you're navigating the ship and you're meeting the captain and you're getting Cortana and yada, yada, yada. And at the very end of the game, you're right back on that ship. But now you've got to walk through it a different way. It's all fucked up and destroyed. It's taken over by zombies known as the flood and ultimately ends in like the warthog chase. But the thing I wanted to highlight was this moment where you get an objective that says like find engineering, but it tells you specifically like find engineering through the cryo chamber And my friend and I were having a bit of difficulty, actually, like figuring out where we needed to go because there were like so many hallways and doors and such. And then on top of that, you know, we're conditioned to modern gaming, like we're playing Halo 1, but we're conditioned to modern gaming, right? Think of like Assassin's Creed, Far Cry 6, Gears of War, any of these games. Think of what happens when you get an objective. Some weird, like, symbol, maybe a diamond or something pops up, like, in the distance, and it's like, oh, that's where I need to go. Okay, thank you, game. Halo 1 doesn't do that. (laughs) Halo 1 doesn't do that. But that's where the semiotics come into play, right? Because you're in this spaceship, and there are signs around. Not, like, big, tangible signs, but instead the signage is actually painted on the floor or the walls, right? And... I probably would say my only problem with this is, like, the signs were painted on the floor. Like, I'd much rather have signs painted at eye level, but maybe that's, like, a different discussion entirely. But the semiotics come into play here because 
when you're looking at the environment, you do see the the signage of cryo chamber. It's a it's a big like blue arrow, right? Or it's a it's a big not arrow but a triangle, right? There's a big triangle on the floor, and within the triangle, which is pointing in the direction of the cryo chamber, within the triangle says cryo, and maybe it has like a snowflake symbol like next to that word, right? And then you go through the cryo chamber, and now you're trying to figure out, fuck, how do I get to how do I get to engineering? Like, where's engineering? And you know, you're walking down this big hallway, and suddenly you see two big red arrows, and within one big red arrow it says armory, and maybe has a gun symbol next to it, and and the other arrow says engineering and it has a gear next to it. So even if you don't understand the language, you're getting the symbol to understand what it's asking you to go towards at a glance, right? And that's all part of semiotics. Like, sorry if this sounds like a weird gumbo of different things. No, this is really this is really cool. It's like there's also we could look at color, right? Like like yeah. if you think about like a like if you're following a, a main mission or a quest, right? Mm-hmm. Often those like the the waypoint markers are are yellow, right? Um, right. If there's like a side mission, right, or, to denote you know, the golden path as we right. call it in design, yeah. Exactly, yes. So even the color, like, it's not just the shape, you know, but it's like kind of, it seems like it's a bunch of these different things, right? It's like, uh, you know, where is this, where exactly is this on the screen? Is this, a, is it fixed? Is it something that moves based on, like, my camera? Uh, you know, what is the color? What is the size and shape? Right, exactly. And all of that just goes to help the player during their experience, like help guide them basically that's why i mentioned the collaboration between level design and art because you know level design we're creating this cool journey through space and and what have you and we don't want the player to get lost of course but like we may not be the ones to be putting up signage but we'll have to talk to art to say hey i want the player to find engineering through the cryo chamber but i don't want to put a marker or you know maybe we're at a a point in gaming where we're not doing those mission markers right now is there any way we can like give them a good clean call out right and then it turns into like oh okay we'll put arrows on the ground or maybe in the in the example of half-life one they went with a more hospital approach which i thought was fantastic and i would love to see more of uh the hospital approach being like you see these different colored lines along the floor or the walls and then they travel to their sectors right so like icu might have a red line and then all through the hospital you see a red line that guides you to icu right and we can also kind of see that in half-life one where you're first walking into the facility and you have the different colored lines leading you to like gordon's half-life suit and then the test chamber and wherever else and that's kind of semiotics it's the it's the study of sign processes the study of making signs and all the different shit that goes into making signs like the symbolism and the actual text and out above the text just like the actual communication of that text like is it actual text is there going to be braille there uh is there going to be a symbol like under the text next to the text right because on top of that the sign has a shape of its own and you need to fit your content onto that shape. So determining the shape of the sign, again, going back to the, to the red triangles, right? That's part of the semiotics as well. So next time you're playing a level that you're having a good time in or find yourself really easily navigating or maybe getting hella lost in, think of semiotics and maybe how that could be helping you or how that could help you in the case of a level where you get lost. Thank you for listening to Deep in the D-Pad. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share us with your friends. For updates and discussion, follow us on Reddit at r slash deep in the D-Pad, Facebook at Deep D-Pad, and subscribe to Deep in the D-Pad on YouTube. Don't forget to hit the bell. And if you want to ask us questions or you had a chance to share your own D-Pad delight on the show, email us at askdeepinthedpad at gmail.com. Be sure to put question or delight in the subject line. Big thanks to 8-Bit Jazz and Kevin McLeod for supplying the music for the show. 